You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, the fanatic of her looks back at the best and worst films of the 2010s. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin-yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am your alluring operating system, Thomas Mariani. Hey, how you doing? I'm Adam Thomas, and I just, I I really just, I'm, I'm sorry for our bad pick. <laughs> God. Well... That there's a lot to that, Adam. I'm sorry for both of our bad picks. <laughs> we'll we'll get into all that. This is an interesting episode, Adam, because uh, this is gonna be a lot of firsts for the show. Mm-hmm. But the big topic is because uh, this will be released around New Year's Eve, New Year's Day of 2019 to 2020. So first of all, Happy New Year, everybody! Um, when you're listening, I hope it's a great and promising 2020 for you, as I'm sure it'll be for us. And this show just will continue to steamroll right down the drain. Just keep on going <laughs> yep. down. Keep on going. We're, we're the boulder in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep, just going down. So, Adam, we're, we decided to do, obviously, like, hmm, well, it's the end of a year. And we, as we did last week, talked about the best and worst of 2019. But we figured it's the ending of a decade. And there are a lot of movies to talk about in that span of from 2010 to 2019. So uh, this is an episode about the best and worst of the 2010s, but... It won't be the only one, because next week we are going to be doing the same thing, but we're going to switch on our qualities, because for those of you who might be new, each week Adam and I pick a number between uh, 1 and 10 in order to pick two picks uh, from each other's picks. So, for example, this episode, um, Adam had two bad picks, as he kind of previously mentioned, and I picked number between 1 and 10, we got the bad movie that we were going to cover, and then another one that we might cover, so we'll, we'll explain that. Um, but he also did the same thing for me between um, the two good picks that we had for, like I said, best and worst films of the decade of the 2010s. And Adam, um, how would you sort of look back on this decade of film? But not necessarily, like, was it overall good or bad, but what did you sort of feel was, like, maybe were some recurring trends, or what do you feel, like, really stood out to you about this decade? After, obviously... 2008 started the superhero movie boom but either giant blockbusters or little independent darlings and that and that's kind of what it felt like was happening with this there's some that stood out you know a lot of like the smaller movies and stuff like that that i I really thoroughly enjoyed i'd say decade was a strong year for genre film in general or a strong decade for genre films but ultimately there's a lot of forgettable stuff well, yeah, I mean, I guess this is an interesting perspective, uh, because this is where I would say this decade is where I came to serve my own as, like, a movie fan. Where, like, I liked movies before this, but I felt like this decade, because obviously there's a lot, where, like, at the beginning of this decade, it's, it's weird to think for me, I was still in high school. And so I've gone through a lot of different changes, just both in my own life, but then also in terms of my taste of film. Um, I've broadened my horizons a bit, and I think in terms of this decade, I do agree with your big thing about this decade definitely sort of saw the death of the mid-budget movie, 
which for those of you who don't know, basically movies tend to be like, you got your small independent movies that are like maybe a couple million dollars at the most, but even smaller budgets to some degree, which you get a lot of like your A24s, for example. Um, and then your big budget movies are obviously anything in the range of like hundred to even more. Like we got what a few $300 million budget movies and stuff like that in this decade as, like, budgets continue to expand and expand further. Um, and then the mid-budget movies, just something that costs maybe more, like, between 30 to $60 million, that really died out this decade. And I don't know if it'll really come back in full force anytime soon. Because studios either want to make the smallest, most cost-effective thing that they can make a huge profit on, or make something so incredibly expensive that people will be driven to it, in the case of, like, your Marvels and stuff. And aside from Marvel, though, um... That success rate has been dwindling. Even this summer, we had, like, a record amount of movies that just flopped horribly, despite massive overblown budgets. If there's any hope for, like, that mid-budget movie coming back, it's definitely a lot of these recent sort of big-budget flops. Yeah, definitely. Maybe, you know, it'll make the studios and the, the heads and the producers kind of take a step back and realize just because something has name value doesn't mean that it's going to make you your money back. The, the product still has to be good. It can't, you can't just rely on name alone, and, and that's been, been happening a lot. It's been a lot of subpar product attached to it. Um, I'd argue, uh, well, uh, all of the DC Universe for the most part, except for like the last three, have just been garbage relying on name value alone. And that was definitely a big trend in terms of just like people trying to do the cinematic universe after Marvel kind of yeah. coalesced it this particular decade with, like, right around the Avengers, everyone was like, fuck, we need to do a cinematic universe. So you got your DC universe, you got the Dark Universe with, with uh, Universal. Remember all the, the great films we got out of that oh, yeah. package? Yeah, that worked out yeah. really well. Remember how they announced it with, like, an entire cast thing of, like, oh, look, Johnny Depp is the Invisible Man, or um, Frankenstein, Javier Bardem, mm -hmm. and all these other people just like, oh, then the mummy flopped and no one cared. <laughs> yeah, it didn't really work out too well. <laughs> no, no. And now they're going to a micro-budget level with that Invisible Man movie that's coming out in February. Which looks interesting. It, it definitely looks interesting. It know, looks like something... good, like, but it looks interesting. No, that's true. I, I am very curious about that. Either way, it might go. But, uh, you know, because we're also talking about a decade, and we couldn't just sum it up by doing just our usual good and bad pick, Adam, uh, we're doing something we haven't done before. We talked about it, but we never actually delved into until now. We're doing lists! Yeah. We're uh, going to have uh, each of us list. So since I had a good pick this time, um, I'll be doing my 10 best of for the decade. And since Adam had his bad pick, he'll be doing his 10 worst of the decade. And I got to tell you, Adam, uh, we'll get into it a lot more once we actually do the lists after our two features. Um, I have never more agonized in doing prep for the show. <laughs> Because there's so many good movies from this decade that I kept, like, switching it right up until, like, we were about to record. I was like, oh, do I put this here? Do I not? What do I do? It's, it, it was so hard for me to do that. But was it all hard for you to do your worst? No, the worst was easy. Uh, I, I pre-did my best list, and I agree, though. That one was incredibly difficult. Oh, man, I had to whittle it down ten at a time. You know what I mean? It, it, it was damn yes. near impossible. Yes, but we'll get to that next week for your list, Adam. And so to talk about um specifically the two films we're doing my good pick which was her the spike jones film from 2013 and then we're doing this week um your pick of the fanatic from just this year uh starring john travolta your favorite your bay your your, oh. your your true one and only oh yeah um as true fans of the show will know but some of you who are true fans who listened last week are like thomas didn't you guys end up getting a different movie well another first for today is that um we are uh, pulling a mulligan, 
which he'd never done. And the, this is the 87th episode of this show. Uh, we have always gone with whatever pick that we picked at the ending of the last episode, but in this case, I got to watch the pick that you originally had of Max Steele, you know, like about a week ago, and I told you as I was finishing it, Adam, that I wouldn't have much of anything interesting to talk about with this one. I don't know if you ended up seeing Max Steele or not. No, I definitely decided not to even go for it then. No, um, but to be fair to anybody who may have seen... Uh, not seen our Twitter or Facebook feeds and accidentally watched Max Steel. I'm I'm sorry uh, that I wasted your time with that, but to at least somewhat compensate you, I am going to time myself right now. I'm not going to edit this section. I'm going to time to you exactly how much I would have to say about Max Steel. So I've got my little timer on my phone. So I'm going to do my stopwatch. I'm going to tell you everything I would have to say about this movie. And go. It's based on a Mattel toy. Um, it was going to start Taylor Lautner, but he decided to not do it. Um, in favor of doing a Stretch Armstrong movie that never happened, much like the rest of his career. It's a very simple story that's like a, you know, superhero origin about a kid who discovers that he's, you know, half alien and he has to leave his high school um, and do some training with a robot who's voiced by the guy who played Big Head on Silicon Valley. Um, it's a pretty generic superhero origin story kind of thing. The actors are very middle ground adequate for the most part. The guy from Silicon Valley who played Big Head is fine as the robot voice. It's shot decently. Uh, Maria Bellows in it as the mom and doesn't get to do anything. And Andy Garcia plays this guy who you think is going to be a mentor, but obviously you know he's going to be the villain. And he wears a really embarrassing plastic Iron Man suit at the end of the movie. It's not the worst thing ever, but it's not really much of anything worth discussing on here. 53 seconds. That's literally all I have to fucking say about the movie. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so naturally we figure, you know... We're doing a best and worst of the decade, Adam, and we like to at least, you know, talk about our movies for around 15 to 25 minutes or so. I think we'll have a lot to say about the other pick we're actually going with. <laughs> because that's the thing, you know, we whenever we do a movie, even no matter how bad it might be for our bad pick, the important thing is at least we can discuss it for a decent amount of time. Right? Even if it's yeah. a really bad movie, at least yeah. if we can have a conversation about it, that's what matters. Or at least get a laugh out of how bad it is or something like that. Right, right, which we can definitely do with our bad feature for the evening, The Fanatic. Is Hunter Dunbar here tonight? That's enough. I need to get an autograph. Don't let him do this to me. I'm a fan. I'm a number one fan. Is it difficult to find famous people's houses? You can't just come to my private residence looking for me. I just wanted an autograph. How do you mind? So, The Fanatic, uh, as I mentioned, came out this year, August 30th, 2019, um, from auteur Fred Durst, who, yes, is that Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit. <laughs> yeah. C- could you not tell by the subtle Limp Biscuit reference in this movie? Oh, I mean, uh, unbelievable. You like the biscuit? Yeah, this is the biscuit. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, for fuck's sake. First of all, nobody ever called it that. <laughs> Second of all, you couldn't even get for the nookie. Like, you had to get a really obscure song. I don't, I don't even remember what it was, but it wasn't the Nookie, or wasn't the song from Mission Impossible 2, or whatever the fuck, <laughs> that, like, anyone would actually know. No 13-year-old kid in 2019 is listening to Limp Biscuit. I can guarantee you. Also, was that kid supposed to be 13? Because they act like he's about five. Yeah, he treats him like he's five. He's <laughs> telling him how to brush his teeth and shit. It's it just, fucking Fred Durst. <laughs> to be fair, I've heard his other two movies, because this isn't his first film. 
I've heard uh, it's like the Education of Charlie Banks and The Long Shots, I believe, are two decent movies from what I've heard. I haven't seen them. But everything I've heard is like, oh, they're surprisingly better for like some, you know, a movie directed by Fred Durst, what you would imagine it would be. Um, this is the movie you would imagine Fred Durst would make. Yes. <laughs> with The Fanatic. Uh, which, Adam, um, this is a newer movie, so uh, why don't you go ahead and maybe do a bit of a plot synopsis and also give your initial thoughts on The Fanatic. Sure. John Travolta plays a character named Moose, who is a offensively played autistic autograph hound who is hunting down his autograph from his favorite horror slash action movie star who has the name hunter dunbar uh which is the stupidest fucking name ever but he he's hunting down this autograph for him and he ends up getting obsessed and becoming a stalker because he every time he runs into his guy to get the autograph he tells him to fuck off so he ends up breaking into his house and tying him to a bed and so on and so forth my first impressions are this is fucking awful i i mean travolta is so just oh god it's it literally comes off offensive to me i don't know it, it's just it's so stereotypical and then you got fucking buff devin sawa which is just weird i don't like that <laughs> your final destination the gym yeah i mean clearly he looks he's yes. fucking ripped and then the yes, awful narration, the overbearing music, the random chalk drawings. I, I just don't... This movie is just a mess, dude. It's a mess. Yes, I, I very much agree with that. Um, would you say... Like, I've, I've heard a lot of people tell, like, this is a so bad it's good movie. Would you agree with that sentiment or not? No. I would never watch this again. I would not tell anybody to watch this. I, I Absolutely not. I think this is just awful. Yeah, I mean, this one definitely got hyped in that way, but it's one of those where I wouldn't say it's a so bad it's a good movie, but um, definitely see some of these clips. There are definitely a few clips from this movie that I could see being like a super cut of entertainingly bad things, like about maybe five to ten minutes long. Travolta I would trying say, to perfect his British accent. I mean, there's that. There's there's <laughs> a lot, because... <laughs> you didn't, So, his character of Moose is, as you mentioned, sort of someone who they never say outright what maybe sort of mental... How to put this delicately? What sort of issue he might have on, um, you know, sort of like developmental disorder or what, whatever may, the case may be, psychological. He's on, he's on the spectrum somewhere. Right. Pretty- John Travolta has said that in interviews that he played him as sort of on the autistic spectrum, and that's the thing is like, if the movie maybe didn't go for that sort of angle and was more just Moose is weird, mm-hmm. I think it'd be a lot more entertaining. But with that angle of it, not just the way Travolta plays it, which is very stereotypical of like, oh, he rocks back and forth, he repeats his words, he doesn't look at people in the eye, and sort of is very shy and awkward in social situations. It has a lot of those tenets of like, you know, any number of different disorders. Uh, but the bigger problem is just that uh, the movie itself is so mean-spirited in a way that feels just kind of like you're not really funnily entertained watching it, you're just kind of like, oh, this is ugly. This is, like, really ugly in terms of just how it's sort of treating both this disorder and this character. And it's also weird where it's, like, you're kind of supposed to feel bad for Moose, even though he's a stalker and eventually a murderer and a kidnapper and all this other stuff. And then on the flip side, Devin Sawa is, like, the biggest asshole. I think Devin Sawa was actually fine in the part. I don't think it's any fault of him as an actor, necessarily. He does what's asked of him. Uh, But... Dunbar is such a dick, too, that it feels almost like, who are we rooting for in the situation? But not in a, like, ambiguous, like, oh, the line between fan and celebrity, where does that line go, and who's the real victim here? No, it just feels inconsistent and stupid. Yeah, and then the rival, like, street performer and everything, how they're constantly teasing, but basically, like, 
Defoe raping him in the bathroom. It just it's they want you to have sympathy for the John Travolta character in a way. Uh, because I think that's why they upplay the mental, you know, disorder or whatever he has to an extreme. And to be honest, yeah, the Hunter Dunbar guy or whatever, to me, he didn't come across that bad because it's like, dude, you come home, this guy's standing at your fucking front gate. Same guy who interrupted you while you were out back trying to have a conversation with your wife. You keep seeing him in your neighborhood. You know he's been in your yard, everything like that. And, and then he ties you to the bed. I mean, what do you, what else do you do? It's a long, I agree. I think there's just a certain degree where like he's so hostile the moment Moose comes anywhere near him. And you, you can kind of tell that this guy has some kind of issue, but you decide to be this big of a dick. I agree that like he doesn't come off nearly as bad as Moose, the murderer, psychopath, stalker dude. Right. But at the same time, it, it does like it, it frames him also in a way where it's like, oh, he's being mean to Moose. Like you see so many shots when he's yelling at Moose of John Travolta being like, oh, I'm so sad. I can't believe that happened to me. Uh-huh. Even though it's just like he's in his right. But the movie has this weird thing of like not knowing who to frame as your real like victim or hero. Yeah, I agree. I do. That's a good point. I don't understand what the message of this movie is. Like, what are they trying to say here? Because it's obvious that he's, they are trying to say something. There is a point to all this. I don't know if it's about toxic fanism, fandom or if it's about, you know, entitled celebrities or what it is. But they're literally trying to say something. And it just it's so muddy and muddled that it doesn't come across at all. There are much better movies that sort of blur that line, do interesting things with it, like A King of Comedy. Or a fan with uh, or, De Niro and Snipes. Yes, or I, an obscure one that not a lot of people will be able to see because of copyright issues, but Fade to Black. Oh, yeah. 80s good. slasher. Yeah, yeah that's that's an underrated one. Um, but yeah, this one in particular doesn't seem to have much of any specific drive. Um, and it's a bummer that also it has this angle of you know him being autistic to some degree, which we want to emphasize. As you make fun of his performance, we're not trying to make fun of anybody who might have similar disorders. No, not at all. I mean, Travolta himself, his son had it, right? And that kind of threw me off a little bit too. It's like, well, I we know your son had it, and you you were a champion of autism awareness and things like that, which is totally fine and commendable, and I think mm-hmm. should be you know a fight fought. But it's so stereotypical and cliche. I mean, what, like you said before, with the rocking back and forth, the can't look at people, the repeat himself, the covering his ears when people are talking to him too loudly, the you know, just some of the terms he would use, like you're you're a hunter dummy bar, like oh god, what is going on with this? And I just don't understand. It's it's such a cheap tactic to take to try to make you feel sympathy for him. Right, right, especially considering the heinous actions that he does right. later on. Yeah, it, it feels very cheap. Um, but it's also a bummer that like he does this because there's so many stupid, funny things he does as his character. <laughs> and it just kind of taints it, the sort of funny badness of it, that he's going for this particular angle. Because, th- like you mentioned, there's the point where he tries to make money to support his apartment, which that's the first problem is like, does he have this apartment by himself or does this weird paparazzi lady who I guess is his friend, um, who supports him somehow also, um, I guess because he can't support himself going onto Hollywood Boulevard and playing a British Bobby police officer, uh, which his intentionally bad accent, I'm guessing is kind of trying to be funny. If so, then it's really offensive given, you know, yes, what, what he's trying to portray. If it's not, then I don't know what it is. Like, is it supposed to be pathetic? 
to some degree, and you're supposed to feel even more sorry for him, that his idea of attracting people on Hollywood Boulevard, where people, you know, dress up as, like, Elmo or Superman and all this other stuff, he's, his idea is just like, I'm a British Bobby, London Bridge is over there. Like, he, he literally does that kind of accent. Jack the Ripper! You're like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> it's so funny out of context, and in context, it's very confusing. That, that's the problem. It's just that in context, watching this entire movie, all like the potentially funny bad stuff just comes off as more insulting and <laughs> shitty to a lot of degrees. Um, that still mean, doesn't mean I didn't laugh at certain things, particularly the moment where he's in the house and he grabs a couple antlers and he's like, Moose is in the house! Moose is in the house! Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and the fucking narration is so unnecessary. Right, by the same paparazzi lady yeah. who... I'm not sure why she's doing the narration at all for this. I have no idea. I have no idea. And it just shows up in random spots, too. Yeah, it feels definitely like they made this in post-production. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, we need something to connect the threads of this plot. Let's have narration over B-roll footage of Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. And it really feels terrible. Um, I will say, though, amongst like several bad things that are in this movie, weirdly, I found that the cinematography was much better than I expected it to be. And I found out that's because it's shot by a guy named Conrad W. Hall, who is the son of Conrad L. Hall, who is an Academy Award-winning uh, cinematographer who shot, like, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, American Beauty, Road to Perdition before he died, uh, amongst just the three that he won Oscars for. Um, and you can tell it kind of carries over in the family, because it's shot very well, despite, you know, Fred Durst not having the biggest imagination, necessarily, as a director. <laughs> it looks really crisp, and especially better for something produced by... Red Box Entertainment, which is another thing. Amongst the 500 production companies that oh, this fucking movie. Oh, I mean, oh, it's like, oh, alright, finally the movie started. Brock, another really shitty production company. The first three minutes of this runtime is pretty much just fucking different logos. E- easily minutes. three minutes. Easily the first three minutes. It's so offensively... Re- it's, not, it's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, um, but but did you maybe agree with that, or did you find more maybe in Fred Durst's directorial style? It looks exactly what I expected it to look like. It looks like a, a low-budget, sort of novice uh, horror film or horror-thriller film. It, it looks to me exactly like a thousand other films. I didn't see anything in it that was, you know, horribly off-putting as far as cinematography or direction. Uh, but there's nothing really that stood out to me either, except for the fucking chalk paintings. I don't understand the logic behind that. Not that I didn't, I thought it was kind of cool the way they looked and everything. But again, like the narration, it would just be random times all of a sudden a chalk drawing would happen. Now, if they did it like a three act structure where there was one at the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end, that would have worked. But it's just. A but there's like point. five or six of them. Yeah, like random fucking points. Yeah. You're like, what is going on? It feels, once again, like they're kind of trying to stretch it out because this movie's 88 minutes long. And if you removed the production logos and the narration bits and those chalk drawings, it would probably be maybe 70 minutes. Oh, easily, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They add so much padding to this movie. It's fucking ridiculous. And like I said, the music uh, and even the drawing scenes when they're like being drawn in front of you is so loud and offensive. Like, it just hurts the ears. You're like, what the fuck? I had to like literally turn it down in those scenes. Yeah, um, and there's even, like, it feels like they're also kind of filling in some of the gaps. Like, at the end, after, spoiler alert, um, Moose gets his hand shot off, and then his eye stabbed. Um, he wanders around, he still lives after this, and he survives to not be arrested. But then they insert a thing where it's like, oh, this drawing shows that he becomes, like, a pirate on the Hollywood Boulevard, I guess. 
so they give you more of anything than the actual footage actually gave you, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's what they're going for. Oh man, that's a great costume! Like I said, there's clearly, they're trying to force some message upon you at, at several points in this movie, and none of it lands. Not a single bit of it lands. It would be interesting, because this isn't just, like, starring Travolta. He also produced it. Oh, yeah. And, oh, I couldn't forget that. Yeah. Um, so there's even more fault at him, necessarily, in this one. Um, and it just feels like if we had maybe more of, like, a personal perspective of, like, from the celebrity, maybe, about, like, being sort of, like, followed around by somebody like, uh, you know, sort of someone on the autism spectrum or even something else like that, someone who grows a bit too attached, that'd be kind of interesting to see. And you know that Travolta probably has had that over the course of his fucking decades-long career. He's had a lot of people who would, like, come up to him and shit. I think it's actually the other way around. I think Travolta's the stalker in real life. <laughs> yeah, no, at all the Hollywood events, he's the one going up, Wow, I love your movies. Oh, so good. John, we we saw each other like like every lunch we were uh, like together. John, we were in Greece together. My name's Olivia Newton. John, oh, so weird. <laughs> I love the physical video so good. Uh, working out, got all sweaty. Wow. Now, now, Adam, longtime viewers will know that you are not a fan of Mr. Travolta in general. He is on your list. Is he the top of the list? He's your least favorite actor uh, out there currently. Probably, <laughs> he's like part of the unholy trilogy. Which, for those of you who are new, what are the who are the unholy trilogy? Adam, your least favorite actors. Well, one of them's getting off the list. He's starting to work his way off. Okay, uh, but Travolta. Typically, it's Travolta, Cage, and Quaid. But uh, Cage is starting to starting to kind of work his way off the list there a little bit. I thought Voight was the third one, John Voight. Oh God, yeah, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, you're right. So it's Travolta, Voight, Quaid. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's the unholy trilogy I'm aware of. Would you say this is the lowest sort of point in a decade where, keep in mind, Travolta has done mostly straight-to-video schlock? Yeah. Like, it has mostly been stuff you would find at a red box. speaking has, of the production Has company. he had any theatrical releases in this decade? I'm, I mean, this decade, I'm, I'm trying... I, I know there was From Paris with Love. Oh, that was, like, in, in 2010. Yeah. yeah, which is terrible. Looking at the 2010s, I'm literally looking at... There's Savages. Okay, I saw that in the theater. Terrible. Oh, that was a terrible film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very bad film. I Am Wrath and Gotti were technically in theaters, but no one saw them. <laughs> oh, I Am um, Wrath. Is that where he's like the, the dude who comes home and his wife has been killed or something like that? I don't know. I just know it for the incredibly generic, hilarious poster of him shooting a gun. He has the worst photoshopped hair possible. Oh, no. <laughs> To continue my question, um, would you say that The Fanatic is his low in terms of a performance of this decade? Yes. I think. I haven't seen Gotti, and I won't. Yes. I, I would say Gotti is the worser film overall. Mm -hmm. um, having seen Gotti, it's a terrible film. Um, spoilers, it might show up next week. Who knows? Uh, for me. Um, but uh, it's, it is such a bummer, because I will also say that he did have, not on in film, but on television, one of his better performances in years, in decades even, with American Crime Story where he played uh, Robert Shapiro, I thought was like one of his rare performances in a while. And to be fair, it's mostly because he spends the entire season just being like, hmm, I don't think we should do that, OJ. <laughs> like, he does that the whole fucking season. But it's compelling in this cast. I think that's probably his best scenario, honestly, at this point, if he wants to kind of salvage his career, is not be the lead in these really low-budget, lame, awful, straight-to-video movies, 
but just embrace being part of an ensemble. He kind of tried that with Savages. It wasn't a good ensemble picture to do. But I think if he wants to salvage whatever credibility he might have clinging on to him, I think we should probably pursue doing supporting roles more than doing what he's doing now. I, I just want to stop. <laughs> well, you're, you're a bit of an unfair perspective to ask, necessarily. Yeah. The last time I really enjoyed Travolta in something was probably Get Shorty, to be honest. <laughs> That's like 25 years ago. Oh, God, that was like 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, no. That's a bad. Mad City was pretty. He was pretty decent in Mad City. Uh, Lucky Numbers, I actually do enjoy for a dark comedy. I know it's not good, but there's some funny stuff in it. And then it's like Battlefield Earth came out, and then everything else is like garbage. And I mean garbage. I'll give him a bit of credit for the Hairspray remake. I thought he was pretty fun in that. Yeah. Even though you're not a musical person, I thought he was at least stretching himself a bit, doing something fun, doing something different. Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll give him that. But to, I guess to swing back to the fanatic a bit, um, we didn't talk much about, I guess, the final act of this movie, which we should at least go into a bit, too, because that's at least where some of the weirder shit happens, mm-hmm. where after he snuck into the house, Travolta has tied up Devin Sawa and proceeds to just do all sorts of weird shit where, like, he dresses up as Jason Voorhees and stabs him with his knife. And he's like, oh, I caught him. I, I really caught him off guard on your dumb bar. And it's like... Why? Why is this technically the only Friday the 13th movie we've got in this decade? Whose choice was it to name him Hunter Dunbar? The Fred Durst, co-writer of the film. Oh, that's like the worst fucking name. No, yeah, also, he, the movie starts out with a quote from the character for some reason. Like, it has in quotations about some by Hunter Dunbar for some reason. I know! I thought the same thing. I'm like, wait a minute! <laughs> So and that vest that he supposedly wore in that movie, that awful bedazzled vest that he wanted to sign. Hey, get the fuck out of here with this. You wore this in Vampire Hunters or something. Yeah, exa- like right, exactly. So he does that line, and then he comes in, and he, he's doing, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And he's, from now you're living dead. How can you not know that? <laughs> I, 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 I will say, I did like... Devin Sawa's delivery on, sorry, man. <laughs> Look, he's, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, he is far too good for this movie. And that's not saying a lot, because Devin Sawa maybe isn't the best actor. He's a very nice person on Twitter. He has a very fun Twitter account. I've heard he's very um, cool in, in person, in real life, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's at least committing to this particular asshole part decently. Sure. Enough. And he's a great audience surrogate, because even though he's an asshole, you're also completely on his side of like, what the fuck's happening? <laughs> Why is this going on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You literally feel like you're you're tied down to a bed while watching this movie. It, it just and then it just goes too long with you know yeah I'll gotta sign whatever you want me and you'll be buddies. And there's a weird red filter over this where it's almost like are you romantically in love with Devin Sawa? I think he was. Like that's kind of the impression I got where he gave him the kiss on the one scene, and then that could have even been an interesting angle to take with it. But they don't even commit to that. It's just this is just pure shit, Thomas. <laughs> Did you, uh, to quote John Travolta's first line in the movie, did you watch this movie and you're just like, oh, I gotta go make a poo? Oh, God, that is the first line in the film. Uh, no, I, I watched this movie and literally hated myself the entire time <laughs> because I chose this. Well, will this be showing up later on a list, maybe? No, because I purposely uh, did not, for either of my choices, 
choose ones that would be on my absolute worst list or best list. Okay, that's interesting because I did the exact opposite approach. <laughs> <laughs> that's very interesting. We like the thing is, folks, we don't know what's on each other's lists yet. As yeah, you're no. listening in anticipation, like we are as in the dark as you are about uh, the other person's picks for sure. But uh, let's get closer to those lists by uh, going to your final thoughts, Adam, on the fanatic. It's just a waste of time. It's a waste of a movie. It's 88 minutes long or whatever. It feels like it's two hours long. It's horribly piss poor acted. Devin Sal is the only one even giving any kind of competent performance. And like you said, that's not saying much when the guy from the scan video is your breakout. It's really bad. I don't understand a lot of the choices they made. I don't, as far as even the narrative or character arc or, or what sort of message they're trying to tell you here or anything. If they wanted it to be just a straight up thriller stalker horror film, then they could have just, they should just gone full bore with that. But they're trying to they're trying to preach some message here. It, it just falls completely flat, and it ultimately becomes just kind of torturous. Yeah, um, I agree. It's not going to be on my list next week because uh, there's at least enough curious things going on here that make it not bottom of the barrel lowest. But it's also just kind of forgettable at the same time. It kind of feels like we talked about it on the show about the diff- various different bad movies where it's like so bad they're good, so bad they're terrible, and so fascinating because you can't believe the train wreck that's happening in front of you. This is a bit of each, which ultimately kind of cancels all of them out, and thus makes it just kind of a movie that you might remember bits and pieces of, but not much overall, and what you might remember is some of the offensive stuff, or maybe some of the trivia bits around it, like this being the lowest grossing movie of any of the theatrical release movies in John Travolta's career, at $3,153. For the one weekend that it showed up in theaters before it was dumped onto Redbox and Amazon Prime, where we saw it. Yep, and that's where it deserves to be, I guess. Yeah, and amongst the various piles of things there, um, it's definitely, a, I would say it's, like I mentioned, Gotti's Travolta's worst film of this decade, but this is definitely his worst performance of the decade for all the reasons we talked about. And if nothing else, also just the fact that he feels so weirdly committed to it that it's almost as if Fred Durst is playing a trick on him. It feels like Fred Durst really got behind me, like, oh, no, man, this will get you an Oscar nomination. You're, you know, you're playing someone who's mentally challenged. To yeah, you're great. doing it's so, so good, man. Holy yeah, shit. You're, you're, you're going to get that Tom Hanks Oscar finally. And instead it ends up being, you know, uh, a, a radio or, to, to quote a funnier example of making fun of this trip, a simple jack in Tropic Thunder. I love it's very simple, I love jack. simple jack. <laughs> He's chasing the it's, butterfly with a mallet. Right, right. That's still a prescient satire to this day, in this case, with The Fanatic, uh, which is pretty terrible, and don't bother watching it for so bad it's good qualities. Just watch any of the number of, like, different clips on YouTube, where you can have a lot more fun watching the British Bobby thing, or um, Mooses in the House, or any of the other... I have to take a poo, any of these number of other things. Just uh, an embarrassment reel for John Travolta. The opposite of an acting reel. All on the internet for him to be embarrassed by. But really, for us to really enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sure. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the ticket. The ticket. Oh damn it! <laughs> <laughs> you jinx, sile you a coke. <laughs> Before we get to our good feature, uh, let's have a little ad for an ESO so you can queue up right after our show. The answer, the ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything, is forty-two. That's right, Broad Speculation, and on the 42 cast, we bring you drama-free discussions on television shows, movies, video games, novels, and comics. 
So don't bother thinking about the question, just go straight to the answer. It's only on the 42Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. Alright, and now we're on to arguably a much better film, in a lot of different regards. Uh, Spike Jones's Hurt. Arguably? <laughs> I don't think that, that, no. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. Theodore, I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup recently. You're kind of nosy. The woman that I've been seeing, Samantha, she's an operating system. I feel really close to her. Like, when I talk to her, I feel like she's with me. I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Me too. Now we know how. So, her, uh, only the fourth film from writer-director Spike Jones. interestingly enough. Because he did Being John Malkovich in 99, Adaptation in 2002, Where the Wild Things Are in 2009, and then Her. And in between, he did a bunch of music videos and produced Jackass movies. It's weird to think. He's only made four yeah. movies in his whole career. Oh, he hasn't made one since this either? No, he hasn't. Not yet. No. Um, yeah, and this is easily my favorite of the four. Oh, wow, that's great, because I, I picked this, mm-hmm. um, and I had seen this back when it came out. I really loved this movie. I did a project on it for college um about the sort of psychology of it but her if you don't know is basically the story of um theodore twombly great name uh played by walking phoenix who's this guy that uh lives in the somewhat distant future not too distant though which is something i really love about this movie his job in this near future is writing greeting cards and sort of like love letters and stuff for other people um they hire him to literally do this because he's a great writer in terms of like you know sort of speaking other people's voices, but he can't really speak about himself because he's very lonely and depressed and sad, but he sort of finds a connection in the form of uh, this OS system that's updated that has a personality known as Samantha, voiced by Scarlett Johansson, and Samantha kind of um, grows to initially just help him out with, like, you know, his sort of depressive blues after he's going through the final stages of his divorce from Rooney Mara, um, and things grow a bit more romantic and connective from there, and I love this movie, but Adam, go ahead, keep going about that with your first watch of this. Uh, what'd you think of her? Uh, no, I, I actually, I, I loved everything about it. I love sci-fi. I love, you know, smart sci-fi, and I think this is a very intelligent movie. And unlike our previous film, this one is trying to, it does have a message, and you can kind of pick up on it. You know, I, unplug. Live life. Maybe what you've always wanted is right there in front of you anyways, and as long as you just take a second. Uh, this to me is easily Joaquin Phoenix's best performance too. The entire cast did a fantastic job. I thought the movie looks beautiful. I love the score and the soundtrack. Scarlett Johansson's voice is perfect. I would fall in love with that voice. I mean, it's, it's absolutely perfect. And like I said, out of, out of everything he's done, Spike Jones, this is probably believe far and away my favorite. Uh, I just think it's a really, really great character piece uh, love story. Uh, between a man and a machine and it's just it's fantastic yeah to to talk about in terms of your unplugged thing what's what's interesting about this like there have been playing movies especially like this decade that have tried to sort of talk about that especially in with the rise of social media and stuff like that um and a lot of those feel a lot more preachy and a lot more especially sort of negative about technology but what i like about this one in particular is that it's not so much like oh unplugged from these terrible devices that you're attached to as much as like some at some point when we develop AI, 
you know, some fear like, oh, it's going to be like a Terminator scenario. They're going to take us over like the Matrix. They're going to build something for us to live in. And in this case, it's like, oh, no, an AI would have the intelligence of like us in theory if it did. That's sort of the free will that it would process. They would most likely be like, oh, you guys are cute, but I kind of want to move on. <laughs> Which is what's so great about this movie is it's a romantic sort of dramedy about sort of like getting over some of your hangups and kind of like expounding yourself and opening yourself up more to the world. But at the same time, it's about like uh, the process of like your partner kind of growing apart from you is literally the singularity. <laughs> Which is such a fucking great idea that I never saw coming. Like blew, blows my mind every time I watch this movie. That's just like, oh, you know, the relationship kind of dissolving. It's like, you know, you have your thing um, in your specific space and I just want to move on. You know, I want to extend to a higher plane of existence that you can't come to. <laughs> yeah, and if you ever get there, look for me. Like, oh Jesus Christ! This <laughs> you just you feel really bad for him. It's such a good good story, and and like I said, it, he's so fantastic in it. But no, to to actually expand upon what you said a little earlier, no, I this never came across as real preachy to me, or you know, you need to unplug, man. The world's alive. No, this is, you still need technology to you know progress in your career to progress in life, and let's just face it. That's the that's the world we live in now. You know, technology we rely on it for almost everything. Um, and this isn't saying to shun it. This is just saying you know to make sure you also have human experience too. And that's that's probably why the reason I love it so much is it didn't come across super preachy or like sort of talking down to people or, or anything like that. Um, it's incredibly smart and well written, and I love the idea of his job and how fucked up it really is when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, oh, and I liked Chris Pratt in his little scene. Like he was, which is this is right before he blew up. Yes, which is so interesting. Yeah, this is late 2013. This comes out, and right after this is like Lego, the year of Lego Movie, and Guardians of the Galaxy, and later Jurassic World. That before he became like a big star, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting. And he's playing a much more like he's still buff. He's still in that weird stage where he's still getting buffed up for Guardians, but he's also just kind of cool and laid back and just like, hey man, I love what you write. It's Mm -hmm. so great. (laughs) <laughs> with their fucking mustaches. <laughs> yeah. oh, the mustaches. Great mustache game in this movie. Yeah. For ah, sure. Right. I loved the scene with Olivia Wilde. It's a very sort of minimalist sort of movie where it's, you know, basically a one man play for the most part. And then just the voice. But there's a lot here and a lot to reflect on. And I, I would love, I, in fact, I'm excited to. I'm definitely going to watch this again. I watched it today. And uh, instantly, almost kind of wanted to restart it. Right, just like get a lot of the details. Mm-hmm. Especially. What I love about like this movie in particular is I agree, it's mostly sort of like either Walking Phoenix and The Voice, or there's like at most two other characters in the scene. Like it'll be Amy Adams and her you know, husband, or um, Chris Pratt and his girlfriend, or any number of other people that sort of like pop in and out of his life, like an Olivia Wilde, or Rooney Mara. Um, but what I like with all of those characters is that none of them ever feel like they're talked down to necessarily. They all feel like actual real people. Especially, like, I love the interaction between him and Amy Adams, because they both feel like very introverted, quiet people. But this isn't also a movie about, like, oh man, you're introverted, why don't you get out there, be wild. It's like, no, that's not what the movie's about. It's about... Be who you are, but don't necessarily, like, shun other people that want to be close to you. Like, especially, I think this is another great example of Spike Jones kind of dressing down the traditional sort of, like, very attractive star of the moment and making them, like, expound one of their greater performances with, like, between this and uh, Cameron Diaz and being John Malkovich. 
Um, this is one of my favorite Amy Adams performances. I get slept on a lot, and she's so phenomenal in this movie too, because she's so much more quiet and introspective here, but says has some of the, like the best bits of back and forth with her and Walking Phoenix throughout. Yeah, she's really really good in it, and I, I love that at the end they leave it sort of open to your interpretation, like a will they or won't they, or is it just them commiserating in their friendship together? Is it, you know, is this what they've both wanted the whole time? They've always been, it's, it's really smart to leave it open like that too. Yeah. She's fantastic. Her husband was such a douchebag. (laughs) You know, you have to, no, no, no. You juice your vegetables. Make sure you eat your fruits. You need the fiber. Like, oh, God. <laughs> but I also do like the fact that she also kind of expounds, like, a great bit where she's like, you know, it was one moment that I thought would be big that would end the relationship, but it was just, I wanted her to put her shoes away, and that was, like, the ticking point. It's like this great, like, in this big sci-fi movie kind of conceit, the grounded aspects really come from, like, her interactions between him, you know, the two of them just talking about, like, you know, just a small thing broke up the entire relationship. And that's, like, so real and so palpable that it makes, once again, bigger sci-fi conceit very emotionally driven. That's what I like about Spike Jones in general is he makes very empathetic genre movies. Like whether it be like the fantasy movie with like uh, where the wild things are, or the sort of sci-fi conceit of uh, being John Malkovich or whatever the fuck adaptation is. I love adaptation, but it's all over the place in terms of what kind of genre it would necessarily be. He makes very movies that are very much empathetic to his characters, despite how like sort of weird and gonzo and crazy the visuals might go. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. He, he plays with the, the idea of genre pictures uh, really subtly. Like, he, he's not about, you know, yeah, it's in the future, this movie, obviously because of the AI technology and everything, but you even forget that that's something that we don't have now or that, you know, is it possible? Well, we think. But it, it doesn't, that's not really what dates the movie or gives it the specific date to me. It's, a, it's all the little subtle touches in the background, like the way certain buildings might look or, you know, certain installations or things like that. That's what gives it sort of the near future look. And I think that's smart. And he does do that in most of his movies where it, it does, never takes you out of it. It never makes it feel like this is solely a story that could only exist in the future. It could almost exist at any point. Um, it, it's just, it's, he's really, really good at subtle, subtle uh, touches and, and things like that. It's, I didn't see where the wild things are just because I wasn't a huge fan of the book anyways, but, uh, I do like adaptation and, uh, being John Malkovich for sure. Uh, adaptation is one of my favorite Nicholas Cage performances, but, uh, his attention to detail is quite impressive. It's, it's very almost like, it reminds me a little bit of like Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, and things like that. But it's, it's, I love that he makes genre pictures with that aesthetic. Right, yeah, because you can tell that he's fascinated by the conceit. And I love especially sort of the, the background detail that I love the most is you see people more and more adapt to the specific OS. And you see more and more people kind of like, it, it builds up the world of like, initially, Walking Phoenix seems like an early adopter. And then from there, so many more people are like using it and talking their OSs in the same way. And it comes to this screeching halt in this great scene where he's at the subway on the stairs and you realize that Samantha has not just been talking to him, but thousands and millions of other people. And he's just like, you've been doing this with so many other, like, millions of people? It's like, am, am I special? It's like, yes, you are. But so are they. And I've had unique experiences with all of them. Just this weird thing where it's like, it humanizes this computer software in such a weird, 
but very intriguing, beautiful way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, too. Until he realized what was going on, I never even thought that that was going to be a possibility. But of course it is. She's probably, like she said, she's thousands of other people's OS system as well. It's really, really cool. And it's heartbreaking when he comes to that revelation. It really is. Because you know once he does that it's changing. Like it's They're not going to stay together. They're not going to keep this relationship going. And uh, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, and especially this is even after the Rooney Mara sequence, which I was worried initially watching this, like, oh, is she just going to be the stereotypical, like, oh, awful ex-wife? But she has totally legitimate points at the same time when they argue with each other at the restaurant. Like, you can tell there was some kind of chemistry at one point, which is really weird considering Rooney Mara and Walking Phoenix hooked up with this movie and are about to be married now, <laughs> which is really interesting. Are they? Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that until fairly recently, because yeah, oh, wow. they did that Jesus and Mary Magdalene. That just recently came out. And it was revealed they were gonna be like, "Oh, they're together." Weird. Um, but but anyway, I I was also very glad that they portrayed her as like someone who obviously is hurt and obviously is like trying to be mean to Walking Phoenix. But at the same time, she's not necessarily saying things that are wrong here. About like you're so mostly closed off to like me. You never really opened up to me, but you're able to open up to this OS. And you can see from her perspective how that works. It's the thing where it's like there's no real villain of this movie as much as like varying different perspectives that are all true to some extent. Which is what I really love about how they play off all the humans in this movie. And even the Oasis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love Brian Cox's little cameo as well. How awesome. (laughs) Yes, as the the recreation of a philosopher as an OS, which is a a real thing that happens even more now. Where it's like, oh, we're going to upload all the quotes from this person, recreate them digitally, basically. Uh, that's another sort of like sort of ahead of its time kind of feature of it. But I, to talk more about Scarlett Johansson, I completely agree that she works so well, and especially it's even more interesting because I didn't know this until we were doing research for this show. She wasn't the original voice; it was originally on set Samantha Morton. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, voice. right. Hence the name Samantha. But apparently, there's varying talks about this. But the big thing was Spike Jones originally made her go a bit more robotic with it, mm-hmm. and he wasn't like he didn't really want to tell her, like, oh, I gotta have you redub the whole thing, since they went with the Scarlett Johansson, and I completely agree. It's, like, it's such a bummer that Scarlett Johansson in real life says stupid shit all the time. Yeah. <laughs> about, like, transgender people and loving Woody Allen and all this other stuff, because she's had a great decade, in all honesty. Oh, when yeah. When she's not, man. you know, when she's not being wasted as Black Widow in some movies, she works sometimes as Black Widow, and then more importantly, in stuff like this, or Under the Skin, or as recently as Jojo Rabbit. She is such a committed performer, and it's so weird, especially considering she's, like, in her mid-30s. Oh, my God, yeah, she is. I think I'm older than her, actually. Uh, I know, like, you just, like, oh, she's been around forever, but it's like, no, she was, like, a kid back when she was in, like, Home Alone 3 and North and shit. Yeah, Ghost World. Yeah, no, she's, she's absolutely fantastic in this movie. I love her voice, but, yeah, what a hell of a decade she's had. Not only from landing, you know, Iron Man 2 and getting the Black Widow role, which originally wasn't even meant for her. It was supposed to be Emily Blunt, but then she just yes. exploded. Man, I mean, and she's everywhere. And I love, like, Under the Skin. I absolutely can't wait to see Jojo Rabbit. And, yeah, in some of the Marvel movies, I'd argue, like you said, she works better in some than others. But, yeah, she's absolutely fantastic. And and nothing, not to slight against Samantha Morton, who, I'm, who is a pretty good actress, but uh, I could not see anybody but Scarlett Johansson being the voice of this character. There's so much warmth and also, especially curiosity. Mm-hmm. I love how curious she is just about everything. Like, even the moment where, like, he goes over to his goddaughter's birthday and she comes over and she has, like, the cute back and forth mm-hmm. with the daughter. Where she's just like, where are you? I'm 
in the computer. I don't have a body. What? That's so silly. And then they, like, play off each other like that. There's so much, like, in- intriguing curiosity and even, say, when things get maybe sexual in a way that could have done been done poorly, but it actually comes off very palpable and real in its own way. Or, you know, as she kind of develops and realizes, like, I, I want to be able to touch it. I want to help you but you're not even opening up to me, someone who's technically designed to help you out with stuff. It says so much about, like, Joaquin's character, but also her development. And it's all vocally, and it's so beautifully done. Like you said, she comes off playful, she comes off inquisitive, curious, sultry. And even, like, when she's upset, you can hear the pain, in, which is so odd to say, but you can hear it in the voice. It's, it's absolutely perfect, and it's a perfect counterbalance to his sort of anti-social type character. Yeah, it, it, it works perfectly. Um, and there's other even great technology stuff, like I love the video game that Amy Adams is developing. That's <laughs> just like, no, you're practicing bad mothering techniques. Oh, you failed your children. <laughs> like, she, like, there's great sort of satirical dark jokes that are coming. Too much processed sugar. Oh, no. <laughs> there, there, there's so much cleverness. To, and it was nominated for several awards, only ended up winning Best Original Screenplay, which is totally deserved. Oh, yeah. It's definitely one of just the better screenplays of the last decade, for sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It absolutely deserved that. Before we close off, to just speak briefly to your Walking Phoenix thing, you know, right now he's getting a lot of attention for a certain performance in a movie uh, that's very over-the-top and sort of shows off like, oh man, he's, he's doing so much on the screen. It's literally most of the, the performance with Joker. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love about this movie is, and in Walking Phoenix in general, is he works so much better when he's sort of more like restrained by somebody and they're able to like sort of hone in on his raw exuberant energy and turn it into something, especially in the case of this or another movie that it's not on my list. And it's such a bummer. Cause I love this movie so much from a couple years ago. Uh, you were never really here. I love when walking Phoenix is just very quiet, mm-hmm. and very sad and very like, he displays so much with that sad face of his, uh, it, it just, it's found so much. There's, a lot of points, honestly, where, you know, somebody in a technology-obsessed world that kind of, like, lives a bit more introverted, there are a few points I, I kind of really related to him in a way that I was just like, oof, I <laughs> see a bit too much of myself than I might want to just admit in Walking Wings' character, but I think that just speaks to the universality of that particular performance and that um, character as written. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and it also speaks to, I mean... This is a very, very possible, you know, sort of near future. And, and I mean, th- this would be most of us, I'd argue, if we, you know, had the ability to have what seems like a completely meaningful friendship or relationship with a disembodied voice. Uh, right, as is displayed in that great conversation with Amy Adams, where she's like, oh, you know, someone be- uh, fell in love with Noah that isn't even theirs. <laughs> like, it's, it becomes, like, almost a trend. Mm-hmm. I kind of love that element of it, too, which is, it's like, oh, it's a new experience, something fun, something to open yourself up to. I like the fact that people treat it like that, where it's, this OS thing isn't treated as, like, an absolute evil or absolute good. It's a very much a chaotic, neutral sort of thing that unleashes upon the world and, you know, um, ends up developing with every all these OSs like, oh, man, humans... You're great, but... Right, let's get the fuck out of here. We should see some other beings. Yeah. That's very much the the conclusion they all come to. And by the way, I'm not saying I'd fall in love with an OS at the moment, but then again, I just downloaded Catalina onto my Mac. Uh Uh-oh. Damn, Catalina. Right. Damn, all these features, though. Uh, But before I get too romantic with my operating system, Adam, your final thoughts on Hurt? It's a very understated, 
uh, genre pick that delivers on everything you could possibly want out of this type of movie. I, I'll be, I didn't give it a fair shake when it first came out. That's why obviously I didn't see it until now. And I'm really glad I did. I absolutely love it. Uh, if I wouldn't have for some reason made my own rule where I'm not going to put any of our picks on my list, this would easily go on, on my one of the best of the decade for sure. I think it's a very, very beautiful sort of love story and it's shot fucking fantastically and acted really, really, really well. I mean, this is, like I said, easily my favorite Joaquin Phoenix performance. It's one of my favorite Amy Adam performances. It's one of my favorite Scarlett Johansson performances. And there's there's something in this for kind of for everybody, really, I think. Uh, if you like sci-fi, if you like, you know, romance movies, if you like character pieces, if you like movies about the human condition even this is this is right up there this is a really really well done movie and i'm glad i got to see it if you like some hipster ass music from guys from the arcade fire and karen O, you'll definitely love this movie well that's like every movie around this time (laughs) they all (laughs) that's true no that's not denying that at all no no it'll be on my list um that's kind of why i secretly did this because like oh i don't have to talk about one entry that much when we do our lists because uh, we would focus so much attention on it. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of the most original sci-fi movies of the decade. It's a great romantic movie in its own right. And it just says so much about like human interaction and technology and the sort of near future. I, I love, I agree, the world that Spike Jones creates with all these different um, sort of settings. Also, the fashion feels very much hipster chic, as it were, for this particular um, era and all the colors pop beautifully with the cinematography. It's it's an excellent film. That's uh, as we're recording this. It's currently on Netflix, and I believe it's going to still continue to be there at least for January of 2020. Uh, so if you missed out on her, definitely seek it out. That's the end of our two features here. But as we promised, uh, we're doing our lists, and uh, so um, Adam has his top ten worst. I have my top ten best. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that we usually decide to at least do this is. Most of the list is in basically a random order. For me, actually, it's chronological. I'm going to go from 2010 to 2018. I actually purposely left out 2019 movies, uh, because I'm just like, it's too close to call. And keep in mind that, obviously, with these lists, they are subject to change. We're like, in 10 more years, we could have 10 completely different films on our different lists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As we sort of catch up on things or rethink certain movies and all this other stuff. And you have at least a similar thing where you're going to like go do it in a random order for the first nine, but then the last one will be your absolute worst of the decade. Yes. On that. Yes. Yes, yes. And the thing is, we're also going to do this where we'll each go through our list and only talk about our movies briefly each, like a couple sentences about them, and then we'll talk a bit more about our mutual choices uh, after that. Adam, uh, go ahead and go first. Let's uh, deliver the bad news first. What are your top ten worst films of the decade? All right. Well, in no discernible order, I got Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, which is just a... Dale, boring, unnecessarily dark comic film. Uh, I have Valerian, which is garbage, garbage fire. Batman vs. Superman, which is not only a terrible film, also one of the most disappointing uh, cinematic experiences of my life. I have Transcendence with Johnny Depp, because why are we still making this type of movie? It's exactly the same as 9,000 other movies. Uh, just with a not caring Johnny Depp. I had Chillerama, which is just so just so fucking terrible. It's a horror anthology movie. It's absolutely ridiculous. I have The Last Airbender, which you motherfucker, <laughs> you ruined you almost ruined The Last Airbender, which is 
arguably one of the greatest uh, syndicated cartoon shows of the last 20 years, if not the greatest. Um, I have Three from Hell, which is one of the worst sequels I've ever fucking seen. And just, if anything, really confirmed to me that Rob Zombie sort of needs to stop or at least have someone take a look at his fucking scripts. I have Terminator Genesis, 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 whatever the fuck. Just a tepid garbage fire of a movie. Just fucking. That's why I didn't even give the new one a chance. I have Nine Lives, (laughs) the fucking Kevin Spacey cat movie. Uh, For several reasons. What is it's a cat movie. Two is it's Kevin Spacey. And three is what the fuck were they thinking? And my absolute worst of the decade is. What's this now? I'm fixing to rob the bank here in town. What are you? The Ridiculous Six. The Adam Sandler straight to Netflix comedy western full of no funny jokes and insanely, insanely offensive stereotypes throughout. As I've said before, to me, a bad comedy is the worst type of movie you can watch, and this is one of the worst comedies I've ever seen in my life. This is one that sort of just, oh, God, I can't do Sandler anymore. I do want to see Uncut Gems, but I fucking fuck Adam Sandler and comedy movies, and goddamn you, Netflix, for giving them all that money to do these awful, awful projects. All right, well, I'll talk about um, a bit of those after I go through my list here, which, as I mentioned, most of these are in chronological order uh, from when they released, um, except the last one will be the number one film. Um, from So, going back to 2010, I have Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, uh, which I think is a masterpiece um, about just, like, psychological terror and one of the best Natalie Portman performances, and just a beautiful sort of exploration about performance, especially, and how that really crumbles the soul in this particular case. Um, from 2012... I have Stories We Tell, which is a bit more obscure. It's a documentary from Sarah Polly, who most of you would know as an actress, uh, but she directed this documentary that's about um, her sort of coming to terms with the relationship she has with her father and then finding out uh, that certain uh, actions her mother might have done uh, might have changed that relationship from her own conception. Um, I have 2013 Spike Jones's Her, which we just talked about previously. really love that sci-fi film. Uh, from 2013 as well, I have Short Term 12, which is a phenomenal small indie drama that has so many people coming out right before they burst on and just ended up winning Oscars and stuff. You got Brie Larson, Rami Malek, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Josh Gallagher Jr., and even Stephanie Beatrice from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, amongst other things. A beautiful, heartwarming drama that's mainly sort of about, in very harsh situations and backgrounds and all this other stuff, finding hope in humanity, and it's such a beautiful little movie that I hope more people see. Uh, from 2014, I have Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, which I'm a big Wes Anderson fan in general, but I think this one is maybe my favorite of his in terms of just really talking about the passage of time and the sort of meticulous production design almost detailing a world far beyond our reach that's completely gone, thanks to the process of time. Has a phenomenal cast, and I will say, maybe a bit of a controversial statement, my absolute favorite Ray Fiennes performance. I think he has so much heart and witty comedy and caddish behavior, but all rolled up into a very tragic, interesting, beautiful character. And it's just, I, I think, more undersung than a lot of his other movies that came out this decade. In 2016, I have another underseen one called Christine, 
which stars Rebecca Hall as uh, Christine Chubbuck, who it's based on a true story about a news anchor who suffers severe depression. And it's a real story. I won't spoil necessarily what happens, though, because it's a bit more obscure. Uh, but it's a phenomenal performance that has a lot of empathy about depression, which I think is something that we're still kind of struggling with in this country and just sort of really realizing like what depression actually means for people. And I think it's a very beautiful, harrowing story that um, has a lot of tragedy in it, but at the same time has this sort of real engaging material that's all there. And one, and in a decade that has wasted Rebecca Hall so much, as we've talked about on the show, a phenomenal turn from her. One of my favorite performances in Christine, which is a more recent watch that I did as sort of research for this list. From uh, 2016 as well, I have Train to Busan, which was my alternative pick for the show, um, and is a phenomenal zombie disaster movie from South Korea that has all the best elements of disaster movies, zombie movies, just human empathy and interaction, also satire that's in there as well that goes far past even South Korea. Beautiful film, another underseen one. Um, Then I have from 2017, Get Out, which was Jordan Peele's debut, a masterpiece, I would argue, of recent horror that just has so much perfect meticulous setting up and paying off and phenomenal performances all around just so meticulously put together and also just one of the more important movies that came out this decade in terms of just both pop culture and even just on a grander scale um, about sort of black cinema all that phenomenal movie and a great decade for horror definitely one of my favorites of the genre in this decade and then from uh, 2018 I have uh, my only animated or superhero film in a world where a lot of those came out this decade Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I think is honestly a perfect movie. Such great groundbreaking animation that we hadn't seen in a decade that mainly kind of got stale with the style of animation. This one just sticks out brightly, but also has just great characters and engaging story and a phenomenal soundtrack and just, it's all around a beautiful movie. And then number one, a movie that we've almost picked several times for this show and I've been the main proponent of it. A movie that speaks to our times, it speaks to the power of cinema, it speaks to hope in a desolate area, a wasteland as it were. I have... My name is Max. My world is fire and blood. Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. I think just a phenomenal, big, explosive movie that doesn't have necessarily the most complex plot, but has the most intriguing way of telling its simple plot in a beautiful, boisterous way, and it's got Tom Hardy, who I think is sort of one of the breakout stars of the decade, and Charlize Theron, who really came into her own in this decade as our leads, but every character is great, every sort of big set piece is phenomenal, every character interaction means something, it's truly visual storytelling on its most supreme level, and it is my favorite film of the 2010s. We're going to have a couple in common. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say the same thing for the worst of list. Maybe not as much. Um, uh, have you seen many of the films on my list? Uh, only, I haven't seen three of them. I haven't seen Stories We Tell, Short Term 12, or Christine. But I've seen all the rest. So that's kind of cool. Gives me something to look forward to checking out for sure. But yeah, I, I, every, all the other ones, I've seen them all. And I, you know, we've talked about Black Swan elsewhere. And I, I like Black Swan, you know, it's you know, Black Swan. But I, I, all the rest of them I absolutely love. I love everything you chose. Yeah, and I mean, uh, with your worst, there's definitely some that'll be in common for us as well. To slightly defend Valerian to a certain extent, um, I think the first, like, 15 minutes of Valerian are phenomenal. Everything from, like, the sort of um, big montage telling us all about, like, the history of sort of space travel 
Mm-hmm. Now it gets some more alien point set to um, Space Oddity by David Bowie. I think is really well put together. And then even the first sequence with the aliens on that one sand planet that's all one big shot I think is phenomenal. And then the moment we're introduced to our two lead characters goes completely off a cliff. Yeah, that's why that's why I included it actually because exactly that. Because it shows so much promise in the first 15-20 minutes. And then once Dane DeHaan and uh, I can't even think of her name. Kara Delevingne. Yeah, show up. You're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you, just, you totally lose. It loses it completely. Yeah, very miscast in the part of, like, big-time adventures. Though, I mean, there's some a lot of those that I haven't seen. Like, I haven't seen Ridiculous 6, despite how much Netflix, as you oh. mentioned, has tried to get me to uh, around oh. the time it came out. It's just like, why don't you watch Ridiculous 6? And I think that's the reason it became, like, the most watched movie on Netflix, just because it would play automatically after, like, every fucking movie you watched in 2015. Mm-hmm. So if you fell asleep, it would just be on. And you'd be like, oh, fuck, I gotta turn it off. Netflix's, like, their weird view-counting system is like, oh, if you at least watch two minutes of it, you watched it. <laughs> Fucker. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, honestly, dude, I wouldn't even bother. Don't even bother. Um, I, I did see some of the stuff, like, Nine Lives was um, a nightmare, and this was even before Kevin Spacey's uh, issues came about. This was, like, the year before. And I, yeah, literally right before. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, man, he can't really go much worse than this. <laughs> and it's, it's such a bummer also that right before all that happened like literally like i think it came out on blu-ray right before it was another movie i was tempted to put on my best of list of baby driver and he's actually really good in that and it's such a bummer they're like oh i literally bought the blu-ray and i'm like i'll watch it tomorrow and all the news hit the next day uh, so it's just sitting there with his fucking face on the cover. And and also, I would definitely say that, like, a Batman v Superman, while it has its fans out there, it's very vocal fans uh, that won't shut the fuck up about it. I can at least say that, like, that was the biggest swing to miss of the ones on your list. Because all the other ones do feel sort of like they're bad in more traditional ways versus a Batman v Superman feels like the biggest swing. And we saw at least most of what the director's vision was on there. And it's like, oh, garbage. As opposed to like the exact sort of weird opposite of that is Fantastic Four, where that was like a movie that got completely mangled in the edit and reshoots and all this other stuff. You know, whatever Josh Trank's original version might have been, it probably wouldn't have been good, but at least would have been more cohesive and interesting. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's the thing, but he's not very, really a proven director yet. He did Chronicle. That was it. He did Chronicle and then this, and he's about to release some movie called Alfonso. It's, it's, it's the dimension fused Al Capone movie that he's doing with Tom Hardy. I didn't know that it was Josh Trank doing that. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. So who knows? But you know, if anything, did you see any sort of uh, connecting thread with your list in terms of uh, all the movies there? Sort of a recurring factor? Mostly genre. Uh, mostly John, because I, I tend to put a lot of stake in genre films. Uh, you know, that's sort of always been my bread and butter. So I maybe critique them a little bit harder than I do anything else. Uh, and, you know, a lot of nostalgia in there as well, like Terminator, Fantastic Four, Batman, Superman. You know, things I grew up loving that, I mean, I don't think anybody except for the weird Batman versus Superman cult of fans would... um disagree with that they just they're all complete missteps because it's not even like they have new fans like nobody saw terminator genesis who hadn't seen any of the original terminators like this is really fucking good yeah like it didn't create any new fans it's just a garbage film and then in the converse with like with batman v superman i was actually working at the theater at the time that that came out and i still remember there was a point where like i was on my break i went to go to the bathroom and i just saw this 
dad walk out with a little girl dressed up in a cute little pink Batgirl outfit. And she just looked up at her dad and was just like, what was that? What happened to Batman? And she was like near tears and shit. And I'm just like, that's that's when you know the movie's just kind of completely sunk down. Not that I'm against a superhero movie, you know, doing darker things necessarily. But when it's like a big Batman v Superman movie and you have the potential to go with like quote-unquote hardcore edgy as you did, it's just like, no. It just ends up kind of feeling hollow and dumb. It feels like it's written by 14-year-old edgelords as opposed to a grown-ass man. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. My Batman would kill people. It's so stupid. I would at least say the sort of kerfuffle of um, the fallout of Zack Snyder's sort of vision to leave the DC Universe in the last half of this decade was, I would say, my favorite sort of production snafu to watch and how that sort of domino kept falling with, like, to Suicide Squad and then to, you know, Justice League and all this other stuff. That was at least the most sort of fascinating thing to follow as the production was going on of all those movies. Yeah, it was definitely interesting. I, I'd say, well, really, when you think about it, a couple of the picks on mine, that that's kind of what happened. Like, Josh Trank with the Fantastic Four, what happened there with him. Yeah, the whole Zack Snyder thing, and then to get Joss Whedon to come in and kind of fix it, and then what, what happened with him with his leaked scripts and everything. I mean, it was just, what a huge clusterfuck. And then I'll say, conversely with my list, I would say probably the biggest thing is sort of, kind of what I mentioned with her, um, there's a lot of sort of like empathy in either these drama or genre or documentary films. I've, I've kind of noticed. It's all about sort of like very sort of human experiences that kind of ground the genres in something a bit more common, um, which is something, especially in this recent decade, I became a lot more att- attached to. Um, with a lot of these things, because Trini Busan has great emotional relationships in there. Into the Spider-Verse has such a great sort of story about finding connections with people who are complete strangers. Also has, like, one of the big few moments where I really, really cried during a comic book movie, which is the Stan Lee cameo, given it came out, like, a month after he died. And it's, like, one of the most soul-crushing things to hear him say, I'm gonna miss it. It just, like, really fucking hits you so hard when it happens. And it's also a great little sort of snapshot of his uh, kind of shysteriness, where it's just like, it always fits, and it's no refunds and shit mm-hmm. in the corner. <laughs> so great about that movie. Like, a really great emotional turn turns, like, really turns to a joke flawlessly and seamlessly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't want. I don't want to talk about too many of these in detail. <laughs> <laughs> Which of the ones you hadn't seen are the most curious to watch, based on my descriptions? Uh, pr- probably the stories we tell. I love a good documentary, and I like her a lot, so I'm definitely curious about that. Uh, so I think that's the one I'm probably going to look up next. And then, uh, I mean, I'm interested to see all all three of them and see i watch pretty much anything yeah um i would definitely say i know you you're kind of hot and cold on brie larson mm-hmm. in short term 12 that's the movie that made me immediately say like she's a great actress she'd been in scott pilgrim and stuff before that but that was a movie where i'm like she's going places and literally two years later she won the oscar for room which was another movie i had agonized about not being on here adam there were so many of these movies that kept shifting out shifting <laughs> back in i'm just like Ugh, the fucking puzzle um were there any maybe honorable mentions for you in terms of "quote unquote" worst that you didn't get a chance to put, oh, that I didn't that I didn't throw on there. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, man! Like movie forty three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did. I like something like that. I don't even put on there because I don't even want to give it the time of day to even talk about it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, that right. uh, God, Paul Blart two, the grown ups movies. It's just mainly bad comedies or bad horror movies that are way work their way onto my list because there's so many of them. 
What were some bad horror ones you didn't put? Oh in? god, like Victor Crowley, the the, the okay. fourth Hatchet movie. I I just was not a fan. Pet Cemetery, It <laughs> Chapter Two. Um, wow, really? Oh yeah, I can. I hate it. Chapter Two. I absolutely hate it. You, you've grown to really hate it since we did Horror Returns episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hate it that much more now. But yeah, the, so you know, mostly just tepid remakes. Just lousy. Straight to DVD, straight to streaming movies, stuff like that. What about you? What were a couple honorable mentions for yours? Oof, I, I just, I literally have like a, the the short list is like another forty different movies. Right, but me, I'm just gonna give me three of them. Give me three of oh, them. Fuck. Oh fuck. Um, you know, I'll go with ones that I think are underrated. Um, okay, there's Pedro Almodovar's The Skin I Live In, which I think mm, is love a phenomenal movie. underrated movie. Love that movie. Really mm-hmm. great. Um. Uh, the Selma, which I thought was very underseen. I think yep. a phenomenal movie. Great movie. A lot more attention. Phenomenal movie. Um, and then third, um, you know, I'll go with the one that was like probably my biggest surprise of, especially a lot of these you're talking about, nostalgic sort of reboots and stuff. Fucking Creed. Yeah, Creed. that's a good call, dude. Creed was a great movie. Especially going in, everyone, like even myself included, was like, a seventh Rocky movie? Is that going to work? What the and, fuck? And, and it had that had one of my favorite sort of theatrical experiences in a movie, where it's one of the rare times I didn't give a shit about people kind of getting pumped up or like actually saying stuff in the middle of a movie. Everyone during the final fight started cheering for fucking Creed, and I was like, you know what, fuck yeah, go Creed. <laughs> no one can hear you from this fucking theater, but fine, I don't give a shit. They were all very respectful the whole way through, and then you just got everyone so mostly pumped up that you had to expel. But but I've seen it since, and it still works even on a home. So that was sort of like the big one for me that brought Michael B. Jordan along with Ryan Coogler's previous movie, Fruitvale Station. Like, that was a big, like, really introduction. Like, this guy's a movie star. And I'm working off Stallone in one of his better performances ever. So fucking great. (laughs) It's such a good movie. And also, um, it was a big show point for Ryan Coogler before he did Black Panther. And sort of became now one of our big up-and-coming directors. Right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I loved Creed, man. Absolutely loved it. Great fucking movies, man. Great Drake decade, I would argue, for movies. And uh, we're not done talking about it, because we'll be talking about it again next week. Uh, but we also uh, usually have some feedback to read, and this week is no exception. Because uh, every Monday on Facebook and Twitter, we put out a feeler about, like, hey, what are usually your best and worst of whatever topic we're doing? But because we're doing a two-parter um, for this particular topic, um, I decided for this first week, we just asked you all for the worst of the decade. Your worst ones, get it all out there. Your absolute worst ones from the decade. And next week... We'll talk about the best ones. Right now, you can uh, go to our Facebook and Twitter feed at DEDVPod and comment and reply on Twitter or anything about, like, hey, what are the the, worst, the best ones for you? Add all the positivity, but let's get all that negativity out there. And uh, keep in mind also that um, when we have this feedback here, I actually kind of uh, truncated a lot of it because we're going long, obviously, for this particular episode. So not all of your the, all the feedback comments are here in some form, but I kind of truncated them down a bit to just listing the titles. So, uh, from Shaquille Lambert at Shaq Excellence, uh, he says his least favorites are The Last Airbender, Detention, Human Centipede 2, A Good Day to Die Hard, Growing Ups 1 and 2, Pixels, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, The Gallows, 31, Suicide Squad, um, The Emoji Movie, and Fan Forstick. Um, James Rodriguez says Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas, Transformers Age of Extinction, Jack and Jill. Uh, Scott Johnson says The Bounty Hunter, Beastly, Branded, Grown Ups 2, Men, Women, and Children, Strange Magic, Fan Four Stick, Joe Dirt 2, Hell and Back, Nerdland, The Emoji Movie, Bright, 
Bohemian Rhapsody, and Love is Blind. Beastly, though, gets my So Bad It's Good for that particular decade. Um, Brian Kane says, uh, God's Not Dead, the harbinger of blatantly hateful, low-budget Christian movies that infest the second half of this decade. Um, Amanda Leonard says, uh, Worst, uh, the new Lion King was probably the worst movie. They ruined it. Uh, Thor Ragnarok just all around hated that whole thing. Uh, Batman v Superman, meh, underwhelming. And stop giving us Batman's backstory. We know it. I don't hate Batfleck as much as I thought I would, though. Um, and Tusk and Zombievers are probably two of the absolute worst things I've ever watched, though I was trying to block those out of my memory. Um, Elliot T. Shot says, uh, I won't bother seeing it to verify, but everything about Cats 2019 seems to seems to make it a clincher. Um, then from Twitter at um, YLMDA, Max Rebo Stand Account, says uh, Jurassic World, Vox Lux, Alice in Wonderland, Terminator Genesis, The Neon Demon. Uh, Christian Chavez at Chris Cinefile says uh, Mother, Cats, Hellboy, Dylan Dog, God's Not Dead 2, Human Centipede 2, The Emoji Movie, Getaway, Abduction. Um, Eve at E Honey Wee says uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Fifty Shades Freed, The Circle, Flatliners, The Whole Truth, The November Man. Um, Steven, at Douchebag Batman, says the Snyder Cut. It hasn't even dropped, and it's turned everyone into twats. Um, and then Jonathan Havner McHale, at Black underscore Gendo, or Barry Barrington, as we all know him. Ten of the worst movies to come out from 2010 to 2019. Lucy, Tyler Perry's Boo and Medea Halloween, Jason Bourne, Life Itself, Little Fockers, Jack and Jill, The Devil Inside, Machete Kills, Assassin's Creed, and The Snowman. Well, there's a lot of movies, Adam. Um, a lot of movies. <laughs> a lot of movies. And, you, you know, I want to say that um, in the time since we've recorded some of these other previous episodes, I have seen Cats 2019. I wrote a whole mm-hmm. review about it up there. I will say it's not going to be on my list, uh, because if nothing else, Cats 2019 is a kind of bad where... It's at least one apparently very faithful to the source material. Like the only fans of that movie I've heard are people who've actually seen Cats. And they're like, oh, it's very faithful. I'm like, okay, that confirms a lot of things for me. Based on the few glimpses I've seen of Cats, <laughs> that confirms so uh-huh. much to me. Um, but then also, I don't think we'll ever get such a phenomenal, weird display of a like flaming failure in our time. Um, because that feels like such a weird risk to do a movie about such a plotless musical and do it the way Tom Hooper decided to do it with not just the CG cat people, but even the way he shot it and the way he decided to have, like, giant sets and shit. It's just, like, it's such a flagrant, flaming disaster that I will at least appreciate on some level for, like, you know what, you swing for all the fucking fences, dude. They're all falling apart as you're swinging. <laughs> yeah, and then I heard they're they're thinking about re-releasing it with updated CGI that already happened. They oh, put they that out. Did the, actually do the, it? Oh no! They put that out the Monday after opening weekend, which is unprecedented. That's yeah. I saw the unaltered original. I saw Cats Pure, the despecialized edition. Right? Yeah, um, you're not a poser. You're not a Cats poser. No, no. Yeah, I saw Judy Dench's real hands go through a fur coat <laughs> <laughs> throughout the whole movie. And I mean, I mean, some of these other ones, uh, I, I'll say, you know, we didn't mention in terms of like bad ones from just this last year. We didn't talk about Hellboy, but that's a mutual one we both really dislike. Yeah, I, I really, really don't like it. it. It just it doesn't need to exist. That's the thing. It, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen, but it just felt like a poor imitation to the already 
you know, decent uh, Del Toro versions, and it, it just I don't understand why I even try. Well, that's the thing. It, it kind of speaks to what you're talking about with a lot of like sort of big properties done poorly. Like you mentioned, The Last Airbender or this, but then also some people mentioned like A Good Day to Die Hard, phenomenal example of that kind of fucking oh. failure. Uh, Transformers: Age of Extinction. We kept getting Transformers movies for way too long from Michael Bay doing that bullshit. Even, like, not a property, but just a real person's life. Bohemian Rhapsody is... That's one that oh, so many people loved, and I, I can't fucking stand it. It's it's not going to be on my worst of list, but it's so close. I, I just... It has so many fucking issues for me. Um, and even some ones that, like, I personally like that I get are really divisive, like The Neon Demon or Mother. Like, I get it. I like not liking either of those movies, but I kind of found them interesting. That's, if nothing else, this is also an interesting year for a lot of divisive, sort of, like, especially indie horror that would have come out. Like, The Witch was another one that was really divisive, even though I love that movie. Um, was another one that I was kind yeah. of contemplating putting near uh, my top ten. But, yeah. It's, it's, if nothing else, we also got a lot more division in this decade, uh, both in film and other circles that we're going to talk about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then we also had some feedback left over from uh, last week from Jonathan, um, who says, uh, in terms of his best and worst of the 2019 just as a year he says um no repeats from mid-year have not seen any jedi cats or sandlers yet um the good waves queen and slim where'd you go bernadette ready or not dolmai is my name good boys the bads itch after two Zombieland two annabelle three and the what the fucks super jexy the joker making over a billion dollars uh, i still haven't seen the joker because i don't fucking care but yeah, I double tap just looked terrible too. Yeah, to to a, to a certain degree. I mean, I I will say, ready or not, I'm really glad he championed because that's another one that kind of got lost in the. Yeah, I want to see that one, dude. I want to see that one. I still want to see Knives Out. I mean, there's a couple that I, I'm dying to see. It just I don't do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, I'll also say a couple that I didn't uh, that I'd seen since we did our uh, best of 2019 that I really loved. Um, we kind of mentioned it before, Uncut Gems. Uh, the most stress you'll ever get from a movie just about people living their lives. Um, especially this one, it's like, it's so much of Adam Sandler and people shouting at each other, but it's so just immersively tense the whole time. Um, and, you know, Sandler's getting some words conversation, and I wouldn't be against it. He is phenomenal in the movie. It's one of the best sort of serious turns he's done in a very long time. Another one um, that I didn't know anything about the source material going in or any other previous film versions of the source material, but I loved Little Women was completely taken off guard by it. I was laughing, I was crying, I was so immersed in it. If nothing else, it also proves the big breakout star of 2019 for me was definitely Florence Pugh, who was the lead in Midsommar, and she was in one of the many Little Women in Little Women. Um, she was also in, I think, uh, one that also kind of got lost at and came out in February, but it was a cute little movie, Fighting With My Family, the Paige WWE movie. Mm-hmm. And it's an adorable little movie, and she's great in it. I believe she's in Black Widow as well. She's going to be in Black Widow, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah, but in terms of 2019, she was the breakout star for me. I just love everything she's uh, done in this year. Um, but yeah, just Little Women, I loved it so much. I cried so much. <laughs> it was just, I just want to throw The Lighthouse in there, because I did just finally get to see it. Um, yeah, right? That movie's fucking, it's a trip, dude. Like, yep. it's, a, it's a trip. It's definitely one that I know I'm going to have to watch a couple more times. Not that I didn't understand anything that was going on, just because how fucking wacky it is. But uh, it's easily the best Willem Dafoe performance in years, if not one of his top performances ever. 
Well, I, I think Willem Dafoe has had such an interesting decade, too. He just mm-hmm. takes, I love that Willem Dafoe, you know, we need to do an episode of Willem Dafoe. It's oh, I'm totally down right for that. I love Willem Dafoe. Dafoe. One of my favorite actors working right now. It's so great that, like, he could do something like The Florida Project, which is one of his mm-hmm. very, very quiet, delicate performances, and then turn around and do something as fucking brazen crazy as The Lighthouse, where he's literally playing, like, the fucking sea captain from The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. And he's fucking fantastic. He's um, and, even, and Robert Pattinson acting against him is phenomenal. And he's had a great glow up this whole decade. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's only going to get bigger. No, but it's a, it was fucking and just the way it looks, too. The way it's shot, the way it's filmed. I mean, it was just, it was really fun to look at, too. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I haven't watched Midsummer yet. I have it now, but I haven't watched it yet. But I'm excited for that one. Yeah, I hope you know if anything else, Robert Eggers, who also did The Witch, too, I, that and Lighthouse are two of, like, I think the great standout horror movies in a decade that's had so much great horror. Um, I, I really hope that we just get another brazen weird movie sooner than rather than later. Because it took, like, four-something years for him to do The Lighthouse after The Witch. I just want to see him do more shit. Just do weird period pieces. Yeah, I agree. Fucked up horror movies. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And then we had a bit of feedback in reference to, from a few episodes ago, our Disney Plus episode from Rafe Telsch, previous guest, uh, who says, Oh my, I don't think I've laughed as hard in an episode as I did the Disney Plus episode. Um, after all the bad movies you guys put yourself through, and Country Bears is the one that breaks the show? I mean, it did. It delayed the show for a week. It did. <laughs> it released two episodes. Yeah, it did. <laughs> uh, don't, don't, don't worry, I'm sure something will come along next that's going to just send me into a tailspin, so... You know, yeah, but yeah, Country Bears is fucking garbage. Yeah, I mean, we have to like get the scale of sorts. Like, how close is the fanatic to to the, to, uh, to Country Bears? Oh, oh God! Oh. <laughs> I man, I don't know. I don't want to watch either one again. Uh, <laughs> the fanatic didn't anger me as much as Country Bears. Let's put it that way. Okay, that's interesting. The movie that depicts John Travolta doing a really bad autistic Yeah, but impression. it's what I expected. True. In the Country Bears, uh, I, 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 who made, why, why, just why does that exist? Listen to our Disney Plus episode to hear Adam just completely break apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to have him do that again, so we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Um, but we want to thank all of you for that feedback. We also want to thank a few other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, as I mentioned, at DEDDPod, um, where we post all our feelers out and stuff. And you can also email us feedback at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Or you can even uh, contact me at my own Twitter account at not the Who's Tommy, where I post my musings and such about the day-to-day grind, as it were. Um, and I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com. I should have either around when this episode drops or right before or around when the second part of our decade sling pops up, my 20 best films of 2019 list that I do every year around like early January. I'm not doing a best of the decade written because I'm going to save all of that for here for all of you loyal listeners out there. Um, but I'll definitely have my written up thing about all 20 of my favorite big movies from the this past year. And I also do some satirical superhero news at trueSuperheroFans.com. And, uh, Adam, you still do some stuff over at Ghoulish Gourds, right? I do, I do. It's been a little bit slow lately. In fact, I got a couple commissions that I still need to finish, uh, just because it's been sick as hell. Still kind of in and out of it. And plus, with the holidays, you know, we got four houses, four families that we got to hit. It's just crazy. But, yes, I do. I, it's still going. Uh, if you want to commission something from me, and you mentioned that you heard it on the show, uh, then you'll get a pretty sizable discount. Uh, I do... 
I paint pumpkins. Uh, they're real. They're not real pumpkins. I get that asked asked that a lot, which I don't understand why. But they're, they're not real pumpkins either. They're foam or plastic. And uh, but I also can do Christmas bulbs. I can basically paint anything you want. If you want something painted, I'll hook you up. I was even thinking about uh, buying um, blank VHS VHS tapes and painting them in different ways and stuff. So if there's you know anything you want, just get a hold of me and we can talk turkey and figure it out. Yeah, like I have my styrofoam pumpkin that I've had for about two months now, and it's not rotting or anything. It's all styrofoam and built to last. Little do you know, at midnight on New Year's Eve, it's going to explode. You know, I always suspected this might be my fate. Mm-hmm, it is. You're killed by a uh, pumpkin. Yeah, with a little shop of horrors on it. Yeah, which is bait. weird. Oddly specific, but... <laughs> Oddly specific. It was like, no, I had that premonition, and it's... Uh... Might turn out to be true. Who knows? But for all this great suspense and terror, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, or you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other podcasting platforms. If you're listening to us on the ESO Network, why not dig into our archives for further episodes that we've released uh, before we join the network? And also, you can rate, review, or just share the show around to give us more visibility. Always helps. Absolutely. Yes, and now, Adam, we got to pick our movies for next week where we'll continue the madness of best and worst of the 2010s. And uh, this time, it'll be uh, your good picks, which you've picked number between 1 and 10 for both of yours, that I will end up uh, picking a number, and it'll be the closest to whatever good pick you have there. And it's the same uh, for my two bad picks. And as I mentioned, uh, we'll have our lists. So Adam's good uh, top 10 list will be on that one of the best movies, and my uh, bottom 10 will also be on that particular one. But... Adam, I'm going to have to pick for yours first, so I'll go with number 10. All right, right at number 10. I have uh, I have not seen it yet. You've told me I should see it. I know a lot of people said I should see it, so I'm expecting good things. I have Sorry to Bother You. Oh, you slappy. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen so it yet. Great. I'm excited to see it. Oh, and boy. It, I, oh. Number one, I had the Jim Jarmusch "Only Lovers Left Alive." The Tom Have Hiddleston. you seen that one? Nope. Oh, that's that's another great one. I didn't even think of that as like on my like big shortcut list, but that's a really great one. So I'm sorry, it was very close. That's another one I juggled. Like, oh, I'm so happy. I'm so just oh, you're completely blind, right? You have no idea what happens. Absolutely no idea, and I won't. Uh, I'm not going to look up anything about it. I'm just going to go in blind. Oh, oh boy, I can't wait to talk about that one. Well. <laughs> Now, for movies I'm sure you're super excited to talk about. Oh, yeah. Uh, Let's go number two. Okay. At number four, I had um, a film from 2014 uh, that's definitely one of the most brazen, bizarre films of the decade. One you have to see to believe, which you will be seeing and believing. It is the Akiva Goldsman directorial debut a Winter's Tale, starring Colin Farrell. Oh, no. Russell Crowe. <laughs> oh, Have you seen this one? Oh, yeah. Oh, you've yeah. seen it? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great. Okay. <laughs> Your other choice? At number nine, I had uh, the Colin Trevorrow infamous disaster, The Book of Henry. Okay, I haven't seen that one, but I, I really didn't want to. So I'm okay. So sorry to bother you in a winner's tale. Oh, that'll be interesting. <laughs> sorry to bother you, winner's tale, but we got to talk about you again. We got to <laughs> dig you back up from the depths. So I think you just found her tagline. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who knows? But 
Uh, so that's an interesting double feature we'll have, and we'll have you know your good list, my bad list, and maybe someone else coming on the show who knows next time. But until then, Adam, uh, excuse me, I gotta have some alone time with Catalina over here. Hey, girl, how you doing? I enjoy. Yeah, a happy New Year, yeah. you fuck. No, I got my New Year's kiss right here. I'm so cool. <laughs> good night, everybody. Good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.